I uh, titled today's message, uh, Imagine, because that's what I'm going to challenge you to do. I'm going to ask you to imagine with me. First scenario, imagine what life would be like had you partnered with Steve Jobs back when Steve was getting uh, everything together, uh, dreaming everything Apple in his garage with just a couple of people. Uh, just think about all of the the impact that Apple has made, iPhones, iPads, iPods, I-E-I-E-I, there's so many <laughs> different products that, uh, I mean, literally there are billions and bi billions of, of Apple products throughout the world. Imagine being part of a movement that has so uh, dramatically transformed uh, our world. Imagine the satisfaction beyond the personal wealth of, of seeing your vision and your dream come to pass beyond all that you could have hoped for, uh, all of these amazing innovations. Imagine. Second scenario, imagine had you partnered with someone like Bill Gates. Bill Gates is the creator of Microsoft, and Microsoft operating uh, systems is probably uh, one of the reasons why life has changed for so many of us. Government functions differently. Business functions differently because of Microsoft's impact upon the world. And in fact, it probably would be impossible to really uh, determine just how much the world has changed because of Microsoft Windows. So imagine what your portfolio would look like today had you partnered with Bill Gates back in the day. Imagine. Third scenario. Imagine what it would be like to be a part of the international team uh, of SEAL teams uh, that, that were challenged with this mission impossible to, to rescue 12 boys and their coach who were trapped two and a half miles for more than two weeks in a cave, flooded cave. The, the cold, the hunger, the, the, the darkness only amplified everyone's fears that they might never be rescued. And if they could possibly even be found, how could they possibly be rescued from such a difficult place. But then imagine, imagine the joy that would be yours because you had a part in one of the most amazing rescues of our lifetime. Imagine seeing those boys fall into the arms of their relieved and grateful parents uh, as they're being reunited for the first time after such a, a fearful experience. Imagine. While those three scenarios I asked you to imagine are absolutely life-changing and, and amazing, yet I really believe that they pale by comparison to the greatest mission and venture that this fallen world will ever know. If you belong to Jesus Christ, here's the, here's the thing. God has called you, Scripture says, into the partnership or the fellowship of his Son, and it literally is a, is a partnership. And this partnership has to do with our rescuing men and women who are, who are trapped in darkness, for whom time is running out, who would be utterly hopeless without God and without help had someone not stepped up to do something about it, to bring a message of hope and rescue to those that are perishing. Imagine the joy that would be yours when you see sons and daughters fall into the arms of their reunited loved ones who themselves have been rescued out of darkness. This scenario, this, this mission that I'm talking about now is great because of what's at stake. And what's at stake is eternal. Think about it. All other missions pale by comparison. This is the passion of heaven. This is the desire of heaven that we who were once lost but now found 
have become partners with the greatest mission of all to rescue those who are perishing. I want to read a portion of Scripture from the Apostle Paul, his second letter. He, he wrote a first letter, now it's his second letter to the Corinthians. When, once you get past the book of Acts, all of the other writings are, are called letters or epistles. And, and this was written to a specific local church. And Paul, if you don't know much about Paul, Paul was an apostle, but Paul wasn't always an apostle. Paul was once the greatest skeptic ever there was and who, who persecuted the, the name of Jesus, who hated everything associated with this, what he thought was occult Christianity. But because of an encounter with the living Christ, his life was transformed, and he becomes one of the greatest proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and this is what he writes, and first century men and women could understand the significance and the clarity which, which these verses are so precious. So I want to pick up in 2 Corinthians 5.14. He says, since or because we believe that Christ died for all. Jesus was crucified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We also believe that we have all died to our old life. One translation says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things pass away. All things become new. And this is this is a process. When Paul said elsewhere, my old man has been crucified with Christ, he wasn't talking about his father disrespectfully. He was talking about his old nature. My old nature has been crucified with Christ. That is what we call identification. We, through faith, identify with the, with the crucified Christ who took the handwriting of the record of our wrongs and he nailed them to the cross in that he became sin for us. And as a result of that, we now have life. The next verse says this. He died for everyone so that, and I, and I, love, I love those two words together, so that, it is such powerful, so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. I love that expression. In fact, it's been one of my life goals is to live for Christ. In fact, that's my email address, live for JC. And I hope to, to do that by the time I leave this world. These are such great verses. And you know what? I don't think enough emphasis is really placed on verse 15. You know, it's kind of like maybe we don't fully grasp what's being said here. But what's being said here is amazing. Now, let me, let me try to... Draw a contrast. Yes, Jesus has set us free from eternal punishment. That's, that's huge, folks, right? Yes, Jesus has set us free from guilt and condemnation. No more guilt. No more condemnation. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Not now, not ever. Huge, again. Yes, Jesus has set us free from the dominion or the power of Satan. And that's a greater deliverance than the children of Israel had physically when they came out of Egypt after 400 years of bondage. But what the apostle is saying here is huge because he's saying that Messiah has died so that we would no longer live for ourselves. That is, that we would no longer live selfishly, self-absorbed, self-centered lives. That is the heart of his mission. That is the heart of the gospel. That is a transformed life and a changed heart. This is amazing. 
Let me, let me, let me try to illustrate. When I was about six years old, uh, I remember this so vividly. Uh, and I think the Holy Spirit just, just refreshed my, my memory of, of the events that took place. It was a Sunday afternoon. We were having dinner. Uh, it was, we had company that day. And uh, my dad says to me, said, son, go into the hall and get a bottle of soda. Apparently, we had finished whatever we were drinking at the table. And so I, I went in the hall. We, we used to keep soda in these wooden cases out in the hall. Because back in the day, actually, I, I don't remember a supermarket being in my neighborhood in Brooklyn. I mean, there were grocery stores. But, but you, you, bought, you bought stuff from the man. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The ice man, the milk man, the fruit and vegetable man came down. I, listen, I'm old enough to remember the fruit and vegetable man coming with a horse and a cart. Whoa. He, he traded up. He got a, he got a uh, what do you call that, uh, uh, station wagon, you know. But he was still the fruit man, you know. And, 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 and guess where we bought soda from? The soda man. The soda man came down the block on his truck, and he would sell. He had customers on every block. He would sell house to house, and, and he would sell by the case. And so when I go out in the hall and I, and I look, there's only one more bottle of soda. No way. I'm not bringing that to the table. That was, that was Hoffman Black Cherry. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't Dr. Pepper, but who cares about Dr. Pepper? You know? It, it was the last bottle, and I am not going to share that. This is a six-year-old who is now defiant to his 40-something-year-old father. And I said, no, I'm not, I'm not getting it. Stubborn, disobedient, disrespectful. Listen, that's the only proof you need to know about the doctrine of sin. Because that was, the, that was the selfishness of sin being manifested. I don't want to share that, that bottle of soda. And you know what? That's when my father taught me the, the right hand of fellowship upon the seat of learning. I tell you, there, there was like two times in my life where my father lost it. And this was one of those occasions where, where he lost it to the point where by today's standards it probably would have been considered child abuse. But I deserved it. But you know what? I still didn't get that bottle of soda, no matter how severely I was punished. I remained stubborn and obstinate to the very end. This is why Jesus Christ died, to deliver us from the power of this selfishness, this selfish disobedience, that we want to have our own way, that we have this compulsion in us, that it's my way or, or no way, you know? That we sing that song, I did it my way. Well, doing it my way leads to death. Listen, I believe that selfishness opened the door to all the misery and pain and, dis and, and sorrow in this world. Paradise witnessed the first act of selfish disobedience as Adam and Eve broke God's command and ate of the forbidden fruit, which they were commanded not to eat of the tree of life. I'm sorry, of, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, let me, let me just share this statement with you. If selfishness is at the heart of sin, and it is, then it required the greatest act of selflessness to break sin's power. The greatest act of selflessness is Jesus Christ taking the cross to himself. Now, listen, I want to say this. If we choose now after we've been set free 
after Jesus Christ has died so that we would no longer live selfishly? If we choose to live selfishly, then what we're doing is we are resurrecting the old man. That's right. We are resurrecting that old man that was crucified with Christ. We're denying our new identity in Christ, and we are forfeiting the joy that comes by being in a relationship with Christ. Verse 17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. And all this is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. Who initiated it? It's God. It's God's gift to us who brought us back to himself through Christ. We who were once alienated, separated from the life of God, outside of the favor of God, have been brought into favor with God in the beloved and have a new kind of life. The old life is in process of fading away. That's why the scripture says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things pass away. All things become new. And there, and there is a process. The new man and the new woman that is emerging in us as we're being conformed to the image of God's Son, it begins here and now, but it continues in eternity exponentially. And that's why I say that, that no other venture, no, no other adventure can even compare to the wonder that, of, of, of what this is like. This is the scenario that God has called us to. And all this is a gift. And we can only describe that as amazing grace. Because selfishness, self-centeredness, being self-absorbed, listen, don't ever underestimate the power that was exerted in Jesus Christ to set us free from, from this mandatory indwelling sin and to cancel our debt and to neutralize the power of sin. When you consider the passion of Jesus, look at him through the Gospels. You consider the, the, the determination of Jesus that he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, even though he knew what was going to take place. But that can be even seen when Jesus, his first recorded words, when he was a child, about 13 years of age, he said, I must be, I must be about my father's business. And the father's business was to send his son so that, so that he might seek and save the lost. Amazing. He left the comfort of heaven. He left the adoration of angels so that he might identify with us so that he might be condemned instead of you and I being condemned in his place. And, he's, and, and his purpose is to bring us back to God, but not just to bring us back to God, but to so elevate our relationship beyond that of Adam and Eve, to so elevate our relationship that we are now partners together with Christ. Let me, let, let me try to make this clear, because this has been given to us many, many different titles and, and descriptions where, where we're called heirs of God, join us with Christ, children of God, children of light, children of the day. And there's so many other phrases with which God seeks, listen, God seeks to, to reshape our identity. God is the one who is reshaping our identity. We are not what we once were. And, and, and there's no one title, there's no one, one description that is sufficient enough to describe our relationship, all that it is and all that it ever will be to God. But perhaps one of the most intimate is that we are called to be the bride of Christ. In fact, 
In fact, even closer than that, we are, we are members of his body, of his bone, and of his flesh. We're all collectively members of his body. But my assignment this morning is to inspire your imagination. That's why I call this imagine. My desire today is to inspire you because the scripture says that God is able to do exceedingly above all that we can ask or even imagine. Now, that wasn't written so that God can somehow say, I'm so much smarter than you and so much wiser than you and so much brighter than you. No, of course he is. That's not why it was. No, it was written to challenge us to think beyond ourselves and to think the thoughts of God, to have the mind of Christ. And when we do, we begin to see that God really does have incredible things in store to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This is, this is a greater eternity, you know, than anything Bill Gates ever had. This is, this is, this is better than partnering with, with Microsoft or, 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 or Apple. This is partnering with the creator uh, in, in the greatest rescue mission of all time. This is the greatest adventure of all time. We're no longer what we once were. And Scripture also calls us laborers together with God. Imagine that, that, that God should so enlist us that we should be working together with God. So look at verse 18 and a half, and, and I'll pick up in chapter 5, and it says, and God has given us the task. He's given us the ministry. He's given us the mission of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. Who was doing this? It was God. God initiated it. It's God's plan, and God is working it out and bringing it to completion. No longer counting people's sins against them. And the reason why God does not count our sins against us is because Jesus paid the price in full. Because the wrath of God was appeased in the person of his son. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation that is of God and man coming together. What was separated, we were separated from the life of God, but now God in Christ has brought us together. Jesus, the man fully God, fully man, is able to lay his hand on God and he's able to lay his hand on us because he is God, but he also is us. This is better than being on the ground floor of Apple and Microsoft. This is being enlisted in the greatest mission of all times. And again, you know, I, I think about, you know, God didn't call angels to preach the gospel. You know, uh, I sometimes think angels would do a better job than, than we possibly can. They don't get tired. They don't grow old. They don't die. They don't have to be replaced every generation. They have, they're mighty in strength. They, Apparently, they can even fly without having to make a reservation or wait, wait standby, you know? Uh, and they're mighty. And yet, God has chosen fallen men and women who are now redeemed to bring the gospel message to those that need to be rescued. You know? I, listen, I understand the theology behind I understand, listen, that, that, that angels who've never sinned cannot fully comprehend how awesome and amazing grace is because they've never been out of a relationship with God. But it goes way beyond that. It goes, it goes our relationship to God, our partnership with God is amazing and it's unique because God doesn't need us. We need him. But the reason why God has chosen us and called us to partner together with him, wait for it, is because he loves us. 
And he really delights in us and really desires to have a father-child relationship, a bridegroom relationship with those of us that are in Christ. We may still be flawed, but we're, be, we're in process. We're being conformed daily to the image of God's Son. And so God's given us this message of, of carrying this wonderful, life-transforming message to those that are in need. And Paul tells us that the gospel is the very power of God that transforms lives for those that receive it. Let me ask you a question. Do you, do you think for one single minute, those 12 boys that were rescued out of that, out of that, that, that watery grave, do you think that for one single minute they would ever forget the faces that broke through the darkness and rescued them and brought them out into the sunlight? Do you think that 70 years from now, when they're in their 80s and 90s and maybe on their deathbed, that they will forget those persons? I tell you, no. They'll not forget. And just like we must never forget those who, who brought us out of darkness and into the light. This message was so heavy on my heart this week. I had, had a call, the, the, the gentleman who had led my wife and I to the Lord and said, hey, I just want to thank you for what you did so over 40-something years ago, leading my wife and I to Christ. I'm so thankful. I will ever be thankful for that. I said, then, you know, whatever fruit that I may have, have gained as a result of, of God calling me to, to serve him, you share that with me. I'll tell you what, we both got kind of emotional. Verse 21 says, God, for God made Christ, for God made Christ. Again, it's God acting, God doing, God initiating. God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we would be made the righteousness of God in Christ. For God made Christ. And he did so in the most, most marvelous of ways. Son of God, co-equal, the second person of the Trinity, co-equal, co-glorious, co-eternal with the Father, took to himself a human body in the form of an infant, a human nature. Today in heaven, there is a, a man who's sitting on the throne of the universe. He's, he's fully God, but he's also fully man. He has two natures, one divine, one human. And he was given a body. And he rejoiced that God had given him a body so that he might become the sacrifice for you and I so that condemnation would fall on him instead of you and me. So that in, in turn, we might be made the beauty of his holiness as a gift, as a gift. What depths of suffering and pain and sorrow that Jesus, that Jesus endured I always say that the highlight of that was Gethsemane. But, but, but even beyond the physical aspect of what Jesus endured is a mystery that you and I will never be able to fully comprehend. But what I know is this, that the greatest exchange of wealth took place. The greatest exchange of wealth took place because he became poor so that we through his poverty might be made rich. And the wealth that God has lavished upon us and will lavish upon us in the future, it goes beyond anything this world has ever imagined. In fact, there's an old, there's an old joke about, about a rich guy who tried to smuggle gold bullion into heaven. And the people laughed at him and said, what are you trying to bring pavement into heaven? 
because the streets of heaven are paved with gold. There's no greater quest than this. The Adventures of Narnia, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Pilgrim's Progress, and so many others are, are only allegories of the greatest love story ever told. And it's the story of, of the king who became, who became a subject so that he might give himself so that, that his subjects might be more than subjects or, or servants, that they might become his beloved bride. Paul describes believers as ambassadors. And, and you know what? If we're ambassadors, then right now, in, in this little square place right now, this is an embassy. And you know what an embassy is? An embassy has the culture of its nation. It has, it has the people of its nation. And, and, and that becomes sovereign ground. And this becomes holy ground because we are ambassadors of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we plead with men, come back to God. Come home to God. And, and there's an urgency in our pleading. Just as there was a window of time to rescue those 12 boys in that, in that flooded cave, so there is an urgency about our message. And, 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 and we, we are not a pleasure cruise where everybody's out on the deck and we're sunning and we're, and we're splashing around in the pool and we're getting really proficient at, at, uh, at, at deck hockey or what's the other thing, shuffleboard. No, no, we are more like a, a battle cruise where F-18s are taking off and landing because we're in an epic battle between light and darkness because what's at stake is sons and daughters and mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and neighbors and co-workers. That's what's at risk. Eternity is at risk. Each one of us, now discharging our duty, each one of us serving in whatever capacity that God has, has called us to, serving with the talents and the abilities and the resources that God has put in our hands. You know, this partnership can be seen in Scripture in, in so many ways, in big ways and small ways, you know, that God really wants to partner together with us. Uh, he partnered together with Abraham in a holy or sacred covenant and, and said, said, Abraham, you're going to have a son when you're 100 years old, and Sarah's going to be 90. Could you imagine a 90-year-old giving birth? A miracle baby. But that was just a foreshadow of the ultimate miracle baby, a virgin birth, that would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Think about it. We see it in the partnership between a young boy and the Messiah, when the young boy gives up voluntarily, gives up his lunch so that in the hands of the Messiah, it becomes food for thousands and thousands of people on that day. And the same thing is true of us today. What we place into Messiah's hands, what we give to him, our time, our talent, our abilities, our blood, sweat, and tears, our finance, our resources, he takes that and he uses it to become life to those who are in need. Paul understood this relationship uh, between himself, between the Lord and the church. He said, we're laborers together with God. In another place in Philippians, I want to read just a couple of verses there from Paul's letter to the Philippians. But by the way, Paul didn't write this from a suite on the Mediterranean overlooking the water. He wrote this from a prison cell. Which, which, which tells me that there's no amount of, of negative circumstances that can ever derail 
the, the kingdom of God. That, that, that can never cause us to be losers. We are more than conquerors through Christ who has loved us. This is what Paul writes. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Church, every time I think about you, I, I just, I thank God for you. You know, you're a church that has always brought me joy. You're a church that's always, you know, been a blessing, you know. You've never caused me any grief. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, being confident of this, that he that began a good work in you will carry it to completion. In other words, what God starts, God is going to finish. And God's going to finish that good work that he began in you. But he, he, he highlights that partnership. In fact, in chapter 1, he talks about partnership, but it's really kind of like a theme that runs through this little letter. And he really comes to the climax of chapter 4 when he says he's absolutely grateful for their partnership. And he says, you have sacrificed time and time again to meet my needs and to undergird me and to support me. He says, I'm so appreciative of that. Not, not that I'm asking for a gift or I'm in need because I've learned that in whatever situation to, to be content. But Paul mentions that. And then he says to this church, this church, my God shall supply all your need by his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's what you need to know. So let me make something clear because I don't want you to be misunderstood. That the gospel is what Jesus Christ has accomplished. It's the good news of what he has done, what God has done on our behalf, right? And it was love that sought us. It was love that bought us. So it now must be love that serves him. We love him because he first loved us. Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. Peter, if you love me, shepherd my people. That is the only motivation that God has for us to join him in this partnership of this, this greatest rescue mission of all times. We're not trying to earn our way to heaven. We're not trying to, to, to earn our salvation or to win faith. We've already, we already have favor with God. We've been highly favored in the beloved. And so, how could we not help but respond to the love of Jesus Christ in such a way that we now love him because he first loved us? Let me say this, th th those first two scenarios that I mentioned have, have no, no eternal significance, no benefit beyond what is in this present life. And you know what? I mean, the, the truth of the matter is, is that you have, you have never really seen, unless it's a joke, a hearse, uh, going to a cemetery followed by a U-Haul. Nobody, nobody takes it with them. Pity the billionaire who dies outside of Christ. I pity. He's had his pleasure. But for those who have loving service for Christ, there are eternal rewards and benefits that are beyond our imagination. And I want you to know that God is not unjust. Or will he forget your labor of love which you've showed toward his name in that you have ministered to one another? You see, it's this love for God and love for one another that becomes the spiritual cement and the strength of a local church, this embassy. Some years ago, I preached a series uh, on the dynamic of synergy. 
Synergy is the belief that you can accomplish so much more, so much greater when there's a, a component of, of, of numbers who are working together rather than if everybody was out on their own doing their own thing. And I saw this first in the scripture where it says, five of you shall chase a hundred, but a hundred of you shall cause 10,000 to flee. That's exponential results. That is, that's staggering results that takes place. That's why humble unity matters. That's why working together matters in partnership. That's why exercising our gifts, talents, and our abilities together in the local expression of a church matters. What's at stake? Sons and daughters falling into the arms of reunited loved ones now in heaven. There's a, a song that's, that's quite a number of years old. You may have never heard it. I wanted to share the lyrics uh, before we close. My son sang this song uh, at uh, a memorial service for one of the youth workers in our church, 24 years old. He tragically died in a plane crash. And uh, I hope the lyrics bless you. I dreamed I went to heaven. You were there with me. We walked upon streets of gold beside the crystal sea. We heard the angels singing. Then someone called your name. You turned and saw this young man. He was smiling as he came. He said, you used to teach my Sunday class when I was only eight. And every week you'd say a prayer before the class would start. And one day when you said that prayer, I asked Jesus in my heart. Another man stood before you. He said, remember the time a missionary came to your church? His pictures made you cry. You didn't have much money, but you gave it anyway. And Jesus took that gift you gave. That's why I'm in heaven today. One by one they came, each life somehow touched by your generosity, little things that you've done, sacrifices that you made, unnoticed on the earth, but in heaven now proclaimed. I know that up in heaven that you're not supposed to cry. But I'm almost sure that there were tears in your eyes as Jesus took you by the hand and you stood before the Lord. He said, my child, look around. Great is your reward. Thank you for giving to the Lord is the chorus. I was a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am so glad you gave. So my challenge to you this morning is to imagine the joy that could be yours eternally because you stepped up and, 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 and you, stood up, you stepped up while others maybe just looked on. Imagine hearing men and women say, thank you for giving to the Lord. Thank you. I'm the reason why. I mean, you're the reason why I'm in heaven. Thank you. I'm a life that was changed. If you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, you, you, the truth is that you need to be rescued out of darkness, just like those boys that were trapped in that, in that desolate cave. Just like my wife and I were rescued some 40-plus years ago when we accepted Jesus Christ. Let me tell you 
what I don't have to imagine. I don't have to imagine that my sins have been forgiven. They have. Jesus paid the price in full. And I don't have to imagine that I will spend eternity in heaven because I know that I know that he that has the Son has everlasting life. And if you're here this morning and you'd like to make that commitment to Christ, the fact is that you don't have to imagine either. If you will put your trust in Jesus Christ and all that he's accomplished, as an ambassador of Christ, I plead with you, come back to God. Those that invited you to church, they may be pleading with you right now, come home, come home to God. If you will, you'll become a part of the greatest rescue of all times. And, and this is my bottom line. Imagine the lives that will be changed because you stepped up to be a part of the most amazing rescue of all time. Let's pray. If you would like to accept Jesus Christ in your heart, in your own words, you could kind of pray along with me, say something like this. Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me. Transform me. Make me a new person, a new man, a new woman in Christ. I believe that you died for me and that you rose again so that I would have eternal life. I thank you for that. In Jesus' name. Father, I just pray that the challenge has gone out, that we will step up to venture into the darkness, just like those divers ventured into that dark cave to rescue the perishing. That we will exercise the, the talents, the gifts, the resources that God, you have given to us so that one day we will hear you say to us, well done, good, faithful servant. Great is your reward. Amen. Amen.